Evolutionary.org presents Evolutionary Hardcore Podcast with your co-hosts, Steve from the American Underground and Mobster from the UK Iron Den. Get ready for the most hardcore and underground info in the industry. And here we go. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6... Evolutionary.org emergency podcast number two coming your way. Steve Schmee and the mobster. What's up, buddy? How you doing? All good. As per usual, we are out here doing what we do to protect and educate our listeners. And this is one of those kind of episodes, guys, for the reasons that you'll hear about. Yes, and we did Tom Prince. We did a previous episode with Tom Prince on the evolutionary.org hardcore podcast. And this time, we are updating the situation because Tom Prince has, in fact, passed away recently. So who is Tom Prince? Former IFBB professional bodybuilder. He had his career cut short due to health problems. Passed away recently, 52 years old, literally a few days ago. Yeah. While in his prime in the late 90s and early 2000s, he was considered one of the top bodybuilders. Since then, he's been applauded for his humble nature and willingness to share his secrets. So with this podcast, we're going to celebrate his life. We're going to talk about his successes. We're going to talk about his health problems, which he's been very open about. And we're going to talk about his steroid cycle that he also has been open about. So a bit, I'm going to bring in Mobster. Let's, let's go over some of his statistics. Born in Virginia. October 26, 1969, at his peak stats, he was over 300 pounds. Uh, the, 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 the highest weight I was able to find online that he was reported at was 317 pounds, and he was only five foot eight. Incredible. Yeah. In season, he would cut down to 235. He really had an easy time shifting his weight up and down. He talks a lot about that, and he admits – that it has a lot to do with his genetics, being able to man- manipulate his body like that, but also because of his vast knowledge through trial and error, through research and through looking up the science of nutrition, training, and steroids. And that's how he was able to get to where he was and change his body structure so easily. So I'll bring in Mobster. Give us your thoughts on uh, so far, Mobster. What are your thoughts? Well, I was going to say, I'm, I made a note in the pre-show Gaining and losing 50 to 60 pounds, as you say, 315, sorry, uh, 235 to 316, 317 pounds. Without his kind of genetics, this stress on your body, guys, is absolutely unreal. And in the modern uh, way of training, is a really, really bad idea to have to lose 50 or 60 pounds. That's just, I mean, it's more, it's, it's closer to 80 pounds. See, my maths are off. And that is absolutely fucking mental. He really is. Now, with his genetics, he says it was easy. But I think, all things considered, and given the nature of his illness, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the stress. Steve, you know better than I do with regards to blood profiles or whatever else. Dropping tissue, burning fat, burning protein, dropping tissue, whatever else, is going to be processed. You know, you don't just stand there and it goes from, you know, your muscles and comes out your ass. It just doesn't work like that. Every protest has to be turned 
broken down into amino acids and then turned into urea and excreted it, 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 in your poo and whatever else. So, I mean, he says easy with his genetics and no doubt the ability to gain that much muscle was easy. But dropping that kind of weight, dropping that kind of fat, manipulate, it, it to me is a stressor on the body. And given the, the knowledge that we now have by his own admission and with the information that he's provided, the, the, I would suggest it was a really bad idea. The fact that he was able to do it easily is not necessarily a good thing. And for most of us who do not possess Tom Prince's kind of genetics, it would be a really, really bad idea. I mean, quite simply, guys, 20 pounds. 20 pounds, if you, maybe less, if you're Tom Prince's height, would be okay. Uh, you know, off-season, a little bit of extra fat, cushions and joints, you can move some more weights around, you can add new meat to the bones, you can put more muscle on, it's fine. But 80 pounds or close to 80 pounds, Stevie, it has to stress the body, has to. Yeah, it really does. And um, it, it, it puts a lot of pressure on the body and it stresses the body, whatever you want to call, whatever term you want to use. And it really makes your organs work very, very hard in the process. Uh, and, you know, that's really did not help his situation, um, having to deal with his organ issues that he had to deal with, which we'll get into shortly. And that's just that's just on the muscle stuff, Steve. So let's assume, and again, this is by his own admission, it's manipulation of the diet. So you're, not only are you gaining or losing this weight vis-a-vis -vis muscle tissue, fat, and so on and so forth, but you're processing a hell of a lot of food now, again, genetically speaking, he had an, had an advantage and therefore he might not necessarily have had to manipulate the food quite so much as anybody else with that. That's kind of genetics in order to gain and lose that kind of weight. And then, of course, the PEDs. So it, it, essentially, it's a, free, it's a free time whammy. And it's one of those things which we talked, we've talked about in Hardcore Podcasts. I know you've dealt with it on other evolutionary podcasts. And it's, it's quite simple. that we, It's that the definition of looking good. Uh, and, and appearing to be healthy versus of extremes that we sometimes go to. And I don't just mean bodybuilders, but anybody that lifts weights in off-season, giant fellas that I've been around, a strong man, the process and the food, the process and the PEDs, and of course the crazy training we're doing. And again, that's other athletes as well, extreme endurance athletes, et cetera, et cetera. In order sometimes to be an elite in any of these fields, you have to do things that are kind of crazy. So what we're getting, what I'm getting at here specifically is these are all stresses on the body. And then as we'll get into, I think in a little while, I'll like I mention it now, Steve, help his own admission. And I mentioned this in the previous podcast of essentially abusing uh, Advil, uh, ibuprofen and inflammatories as a result, of course, of the training that he was doing, and specifically from, from memory, and you can check this in the previous podcast, guys, to see if I'm uh, not remembering it quite correctly, he was doubling up. So from memory, the typical dose that you would take if you was using an anti-inflammatory is 200 to 400 milligrams two to three times a day. And if I remember correctly, Tom talks about doubling up. So he was 400 to 800 milligrams up to four times a day. And that drug in and of itself and other pain medications, but specifically ibuprofen, rips up the stomach, Steve. And without people being obviously aware of it, but it's all there in the paperwork, isn't good for your organs as well. So you're doing a quadruple whammy. And then we get into the genetics and medical conditions, etc. Back to you. 
Yeah, and that's definitely has a lot to do with painkillers. Uh, a lot of weightlifters, what they'll do is, you know, they're in pain. They're, they have pain mm. all the time, so they'll take ibuprofen to mask the pain for sure. So there's all these factors that have to do with that. So let's talk about Tom Prince's peak years. Let's talk about the good stuff. Uh, yep. He was born to bodybuild, absolutely born to bodybuild. 26 years old, he was getting NPC National second place back-to-back years. In 97, he was able to earn first place. That's not an easy competition to win at all. And he was okay. getting first and second places year after year after year, three straight years. Finished top 10 at the 2000 IFBB Pro, Ironman Pro, 2001 IFBB Grand Prix England, and 2001 IFB Nine of Champions. And that, and that one, he got third place. His top Mr. Olympia finish was 16th place in 2001. Um, so. Even getting 16 at Mr. Olympia, that is the best of the best. So definitely he's yeah. a top 16 bodybuilder in the world at his peak. And I think if he would have stayed healthy, he had the potential to be even higher. Um, so some of his other competitions that we mentioned at Mobster before I bring in as well. Yeah. Uh, 97 NPC USAs, he got, he got ninth place. Um, Night of Champions in 2002 seventh, uh, 2002 Southwest Pro Cup ninth. So he got top 10 in a lot of competitions from 1995 to 2002 before disaster struck. And he did have to cut his pro bodybuilding career short. It only lasted those seven years because of the health problems, which he got as a result of genetics, bodybuilding, steroid use, all, all of it all above. Although he does say that he doesn't blame the steroids for it. He still doesn't recommend guys use steroids, abusing steroids at least. So a lot of different factors involved. It cannot help your situation to use steroids when you are have a genetic condition of where your kidneys do don't function very well. So I'll bring you in, Mobster. Talk a little bit and give your opinion on that. And then talk yep. a little bit about his training. And then I'll get, I'll get into his diet. I'll reference the genetics things that you just mentioned there, Steve. Genetically, incredibly broad-shouldered, huge quads. Uh, I seem to recall, and if regards to the training, some heavy overhead work in terms of presses, etc. But there's also a thought which occurs to me as we're doing this podcast that there's arguments, and of course, every generation thinks this kind of stuff, but there's arguments for the quality of the bodybuilders that he was competing against in the mid to late 90s. And we are going to look at people like Flex Wheeler. I mean, just, just athletes of that generation, Chris Cormier, et cetera, et cetera. And these are the guys that Tom was coming up against in his competitions. These were the guys, for example, the Ironman that you mentioned on earlier on was a great competition put on by the people that owned Ironman magazine. And, and if you won that, you was considered a contender. So, you know, it's that kind of stuff. Grand Prix England, for example, you mentioned coming over to the UK. It's one of the ones I didn't go to see. And the quality of bodybuilders was that you'd have typically two or three top British athletes, but the rest of the field was made of athletes from across the world, including a very high proportion of high class uh, bodybuilders. I mean, a good, good example again here, Steve, I think the Grand Prix that I went to included Jay Cutler, Chris Cormier, Dexter Jackson, and so on. So that's the kind of level that he was at. And when you're against that group, 
it's when you obviously that go, oh, oh, we only got ninth, you only got eighth. Yeah, but in that group, in the top 10 guys in the world and people that are considered Hall of Fame bodybuilders and legends of the sport, he's just outside that area. And I mean, literally just outside. So genetically, the other side of the genetic coin is, and we're, which we're getting to, of course, us seeing, uh, as, as again, obviously, we've seen this, we do the pre-show research for the previous podcast and this one, we, we know what he looked like after. And quite simply, guys, he was half the man that he once was. Well, that gives you an indication of just how much tissue he'd added, added to his skeleton that he put on to be the size that he was. In other words, underneath all that muscle was a small frame. Underneath all that muscle was a kind of small guy. So his ability to add muscles in that frame is extraordinary. And that goes over and above anything else we could talk about with regards to training and performance enhancing drugs. It just proves to you. A good example here, Steve, is for myself, and I've used this with other people. If you've been training a very, very long time and you stop for an injury or something like that, you don't shrink down to, to this the, the way that you started. I'm 18 years of age, 175 pounds versus what I am now. I wouldn't, I, that when, the last time I had a long-term injury that took me two to three months to recover from, I lost 10 pounds. I did not go back to 175 pounds. Tom, as you know, Steve, looked completely different, like his smaller, skinnier, younger brother when he finished. And that wasn't just a result of the medical issues and change of lifestyle, et cetera, et cetera, which of course play a role, but literally the, the, the genetic advantage being able to put on and then remove that much muscle tissue, that much size, et cetera. So genetically, a fantastically uh, advantaged athlete, to say the least. Training, I mean, this is one of the things that we mentioned in the previous podcast, Steve. I mean, so I think I recall, as I say, some very good overhead numbers, which would explain those absolutely massive delts. But I also recall that I think some of that was the issue that required him to take painkillers because of the pound of the joints he was getting. Through. I mean, and I know this myself as an older athlete with the shoulder pains for myself. And to a lesser degree, we, we see athletes on our uh, forums talking about elbow tendonitis and so on and so forth. And that's from overuse, but that's from all the tricep work, all the bench work, and to a lesser degree, all the pulling, all the rowing that you guys are doing. It. Pretty much every movement you're doing it through the elbow. And this is a problem. The problem also for Tom, and it's something that he's mentioned, and which we're, which we're going to refer to, is said he didn't like the traveling and he didn't like the competitions as much as he liked to train in the gym. I think he was one of those guys, Steve, and you can see this in some of the old photographs and a couple of the videos from those times, that it was one of those blokes, especially, again, at that group that I mentioned earlier on, who would always be seen in the background or, you know, buddying up to the other top 10 guys, top 15 guys at Gold's Gym. In other words, he was a gym hog. He liked to be there. He enjoyed training. He liked to be around the guys that were training and so on and so forth. More, as he says, then, then the tra- I mean, I don't travel well, but more than the traveling, the Grand Prix tours are a giant pain in the arse. You can earn some money and it's an experience, but it's not an easy thing to do. And again, getting into shape for competition. So I can understand that. I think you've referred to the, the perma bulkers as a terminology before, Steve. I don't think necessarily falls into that particular category as a competing and high level bodybuilder, but certainly someone who liked to be in the gym training versus dieting and getting ready for competition. So, you know, again, guys, one of the words of advice that we would give you is quite simple. We know that some of you love to train. I like to train. 
But equally, I, I'm more than well aware of the ability to overtrain and to pound those joints and end up taking painkillers like Tom did and having the other issues that he's had and needing time off to recover. Uh, and, and, and especially your younger guys, and I mean late teens and, and newbies, early 20s, etc., who think, right, if four days a week's making me big, then five days a week will make me bigger. No, four days is working, stick with four days. Don't add in a day and then find yourself going backwards and don't add in a day and find yourself getting injuries, et cetera. And don't add in a day and find yourself needing to do stuff like take painkillers just to do your work as. I understand the endorphin high, but you have to be very, very careful. And again, this may well have been one of those little things a small factor, even allowing for genetics, that the constant pounding of your joints, taking those painkillers on top of everything else with the medical issue, that literally training in the gym too much, as much as he enjoyed it, might have been a bad idea. There you go, Steve. Yeah, and um, at the end of the day, look, Everyone does this. Everyone at that level does this. Let's just be honest about it. <laughs> so, um, you know, this is what you had to do in those days. There wasn't as much, I think, in those days of an example where you can point to someone and say, you know what? Look, look, this is what happens when when someone overtrains. This is what so happens when someone uses too much steroids. Right. But now Even we're yes. kind of. We're learning more and more about this. And I like that Tom was open about it. And in one of our previous podcasts, we got in depth about he didn't want his kids doing bodybuilding. He didn't mind if they bodybuild it, but he didn't want them doing pro bodybuilding because he knows if you do pro bodybuilding, guess what? You're going to abuse your body. And he didn't want yes. to abuse. He didn't want his kids to abuse his body the way he did. So you have to give him a lot of credit for being open about it and and, and talking about this stuff for sure. I'm so I'm gonna, gonna jump in here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. jump in here very quickly. Yeah. Even Dorian Yates, who'd be probably the best example of around that time of only training one to two hours, say four days a week. Even Dorian ignored the signs, hence the injuries that Dorian ended up getting. And he freely admits to that himself. So he was the one that was damaging the quad. He was the one that was damaging the tricep he was the one that was pulling the bicep because he said by his own example he said the stronger i got the less perhaps i should have done but i ignored it and that was i mean we refer to in the article here for tom saying he was a tactician when he came to training using trial and error and testing his body's limits but really it's kind of also it's an ongoing experiment and dorian was a great one for writing stuff down in his diaries and then analyzing what was working and wasn't working and yet dorian made the mistake of doing stuff and ignoring pain and carrying on hitting stuff ready for a competition. So, yeah, I mean, I mean look, you mentioned it just now, Stephen, refer, reference to uh, Tom's children, and I'm going to agree here. It's quite simple, guys, and I said it already. If you're a top-level professional athlete, re almost regardless of the sport that you're involved in, you are arguably pushing your body to a place that most people never go to, very few people. I have world records. And that means I have done something that no one else has ever done. It doesn't mean I'm not going to be beatable, that someone else might come along. That happens. Got records like that that I've lost. But it means I've gone to a place no one else has ever been to. And what that means, of course, is that your, the, the, the risk factors become incredibly high. Now, if I'm a pro tennis player, 
and I'm using my bat and I'm, I'm doing all the tournaments and I'm traveling the world, then I'm essentially, in order to maximize my income at my best years, probably playing too often. If I, we talked about this on other podcast, if you were a pro ball player, American football player, being run into by the other 300 pound athletes, being smacked, whether you've got the gear on or not, being smashed down into the turf and doing that arguably, this doesn't happen anymore, thank goodness, but arguably, for example, every Saturday, right? So one of the things, guys, is that came out of American football with or without the helmets, of course, was that, you, you know, head trauma, losing consciousness. And this happened in rugby as well. So the only way that you're allowed back on the pitch is you go off and get a scan. But this is what we're talking about. Essentially, we're saying, I'm going to knock you unconscious. And in the old days, you would come back and play to the point of ended up with problems. Same thing with boxing. Once they start the show signs, they won't renew their license. But that is the kind of almost a price that you're willing to pay to be the best in your field. It's not necessarily something that's healthy, Steve. Yeah, definitely. So I'll talk a little bit about his diet. One of the things he does in his diet, which I found interesting, um, in his diet, he does a lot of carb cycling. And that's something that was popular, I think, more popular back. Uh, it's becoming more popular among regular athletes rather than yeah. bodybuilders. So and the way you would do this, the way he used to do this, was he would on days he wasn't doing any training, if he was having a lazy day, let's say he wanted to stay home, watch football all day or basketball or something, he would eat very, very little. But on days he would work out a lot, do a lot of cardio, do weight training, you know, two hours of training, hour and a half of training, whatever. He would raise the amount of protein he was getting. He would raise the amount of carbs or raise the amount of calories. So that's called calorie and carb cycling. And that's something that a lot of, athletes do um a lot of pro athletes out there they're into the whole carb cycling thing and it works it works very well especially if you have top-notch genetics it works incredibly well for you if you have average genetics it's not going to work like if you're an overweight person you've always been fat you can't just carb cycle and get anywhere you're just going to spin your wheels but when you're already lean and you're able to, you know, tap into your genetics, it can work incredibly well. And that's something that he loved to do. And it worked very well for him. And that's how he was able to have uh, such a good feel on his weight and how he's, he was able to manipulate his weight up and down. That was his strategy. I'm going to jump in here again, Steve. There's a couple of thoughts. First things, guys, we sometimes see on the forums when people are asking dietary and for that, even for that matter, supplement type questions. And they'll say, do I need to eat? This way, I have my protein of a certain level, my carbs of a certain level on my off days. And can I take my supplements on the days when I'm training and not take them on other days? Now, sometimes it's quite simple. It's because they can't afford to do so. And so they're trying to save a few bucks. Uh, and we stay for the most part here, guys. And again, it comes down to being a professional athlete with or without genetics versus an average joke. And it's quite simple. For the most part, you stick to doing the same thing on your non-training days as you do your training days. And that's because you're working or you're at college or you're at school. Professional bodybuilders like Tom, unless they choose to be active on their rest days, can and sometimes literally it's going to be stuff like I train like I'm an absolute machine in the gym. I go off, I get massaged, 
and on my rest days, my feet are up on the sofa and I'm on Netflix. They are not being unnecessarily physically active. They might do just enough cardio, the specific amount of cardio they're supposed to do for the day, and then that's kind of it. They're not, they're not out digging up the garden and not painting the spare room. That's kind of like, I'm a professional bodybuilder. I train like a madman. I add the muscle and then I rest. And when I say rest, I mean literally like nothing. Barely, you know, maybe go to the shops with a wife. It's that kind of stuff. There's nothing heavy. It's a rest day is a proper rest day. Most of you guys have got jobs or college or whatever else. It's a five-day week grind, if not more. Some of you guys are in college and work. And trust me, it's definitely for you uh, an issue of making sure that you eat on your rest days, that you keep, for example, creatine into your diet every single day, and so on and so forth. And again, we're talking about the difference between superior, extraordinarily rare, 1% of 1% genetics versus every other person. So, yeah, keep that in mind. Uh, but, but what you will get, and what I did like, is that he's adjusting some of his numbers a very small amount. In the article, for example, 250 to 500 calories a day adjustments. And this is sometimes what you guys will need to do to find out what works, what's the sweet spot, and so on. You need to find that out for yourself. Don't wait for years and then go off and see a coach and ask them what you should be taking. You should know. And you do that by keeping, and then that's boring, guys, a food diary. But this is what you need to do. So you get to see what's the perfect sweet spot for protein for you, what's the perfect sweet spot for fat, carbohydrates and so on and so forth and then how much you need to take out to lose and again Steve you'll talk about this and stuff with people that you've coached you might need to adjust it again but 250 to 500 especially if you've got plenty of time to do these kind of things don't you know leave it to the last minute and then you can adjust it you know when you're trying to get the metabolism ticking over whatever else again Tom had superior genetics it's one of those situations where regardless of the fact that he was probably being tact tactical and, and, and experiment to see what worked, as it, sometimes with the 1% of the 1%, anything would have worked, anything. You know, the ability to add that much muscle and that thin skin is just extraordinary, it really is. To be that vascular, have those kind of legs, have the color shoulders that he had, is rare. So his ability to adapt to these kind of diets and respond is part of that genetic mix that makes him a great bodybuilder as he once was. Back to you, Steve. So let's get into his death a little bit here. This is why we're doing this podcast. This is why we're doing the emergency podcast. Um, his health problems did start back in 2002. We all know that. If you listen to the last podcast we did on Tom Prince on our hardcore episode. And um, so what happened was he competed in 2002, just like normal. Then he started noticing health issues. And what ended up happening was um, his kidneys started to fail. So he started to have to do dialysis. So when your kidneys start failing, your kidneys are kind of like a sponge in your body that excrete all the waste out of your body. So if your kidneys aren't able to function correctly, you're not going to be able to get a waste out of your body. It's kind of like your toilet at home. The pipe going to the sewer is clogged up. And every time you use the toilet and try to flush it, it gets backed up. It doesn't go anywhere. It just sits there. So can you imagine what would happen to your bathroom if you weren't able to flush that waste away? That's what happens in the kidneys. Kidneys aren't able to excrete anything anymore. So to compensate for that, you have to do dialysis. And he was doing dialysis at least three times per week. So obviously he had to quit bodybuilding. But he did say in videos 
that he was able to still work out. It's just obviously he wasn't able to work out the way he did before. Yeah. So there was a, a video who put out 17 years later in 2019 where you would not believe this guy was ever a bodybuilder. I mean, he yeah. does not look, looks very frail, very, very frail, very, very skinny. And um, yeah, he talks about, this is why your guys, your organs are so important because, you know, um, it's very difficult to keep your size when your organs aren't functioning right. So that's why you see with older people, once they get, um, you know, you have relatives that are older, 70, 75, 80, 85 years old, they get, they get small. They really start losing weight. A lot of mass wasting happens. And that's, that's, that's why your body gets to the point where your organs just aren't functioning the way it used to. So we do have to give him a lot of credit monster, very humble, very intelligent in his video gives a lot of yeah. good advice to people and cool information. So what happened with his death, February 5th, 2022, 52 years old, he passed away. And the reason for his death was listed as serious health complications and finally losing his battle with cancer. His wife was at his bedside when he passed away, and his friend and fellow former bodybuilder, Bob Cicerelio, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that, posted mm -hmm. the news on his Instagram. So um, this was the quote, and I'm going to bring you in, Mobster. Um, I'm sure you know a lot of the latest information on this from the last couple of days that have come out, but let me just go over the quote, and I'll bring you in to kind of talk a little bit more about what you found the past couple of days. The quote is, he will always be remembered as a great husband, father, uncle, brother, and friend. Rest in peace, my brother. So we lost a great, great man in Tom Prince. So Mobster, any updates last couple of days that you've found out there in the bodybuilding rumor mill? In, in short, no. I, I, I follow, and you know this from previous podcasts, guys, I follow uh, two or three uh, other pundits uh, daily, sometimes twice and even three times daily, uh, releases of bits of information and news and whatever else. And while everybody, especially Dave Palumbo, RX Muscle, reported on Tom's death, and much like ourselves, talked about how great a bodybuilder he was, uh, they didn't make much of uh, the reasons for his death. And I, I think it's one of those kind of, I mean, again, something that you and I referred to previously, um, first and foremost, medical conditions like this are wearing on the body. They just are. Uh, my own brother, for example, who previously abused drugs back in the day, made it to 40. And that was after stopped doing crazy amounts of drugs or whatever he was doing previously. So you go, how does that work? Well, quite simply, guys, to, to put it into simple terms, You've worn the body out. You've worn your body's ability to do certain particular things and so on and so forth. And that's in my brother's case as, as a heroin user in the past. So you go, okay, what else? Well, I mean, Steve refers to this in the article quite simply when you talk about the suppression of the immune system, Steve. And you go, okay, so it seems sometimes like certain drug users and specifically drug abusers seem almost bulletproof, but again, those people are kind of rare, and that's the only reason we notice them is because they're so rare. The rest of them die of overdoses, the rest of them have organ failure, and that's ultimately what you're looking at here. And, and there's another thing that kind of applies here as well, Steve. And when I talk about wear and tear, also it's kind of like an aging process, okay? So what I mean by that is that you become old before your time. And when Steve says, 
uh, in reference to the video where we've talked about uh, seeing Tom and him talking about, for example, he was he started to do the property business that he'd set up with his wife, and he would do that while he was having uh, kidney dialysis. He would sit there and be on the laptop and talking to to uh, tenants and so on and so forth and dealing with business because dialysis can be four hours at a time. He was using his time incredibly well. But I think there's also arguably, and I don't know if this necessarily applies to Stevie. I think it goes back to what I said earlier on. Uh, sorry to Tom here. And I think it goes back to what I said earlier on. And it's, it's, it's quite simply that in certain particular ways, and I'm just using the joints as an example, uh, if you're doing things that stress in the joints again and again and again, whether you're a gymnast or a contortionist or doing something in a circus or whatever else, and you have the ability to hyperextend your joints, and that was what we call double jointed, is a great thing in terms of your gymnastics and, and your circus career. But in reality, constant stretching of that joint is going to end up damaging the tendons. And you're also putting a joint into a position where wear and tear is going to occur in a place it wouldn't otherwise occur. So that essentially makes you going to end up with old man joints, old woman joints. And the same thing is going to apply to other processes and parts of your body. So, for example, uh, you and I, Steve, go off and get tested and look younger than our age. So a chronological age. From my side right now, as we do this podcast, is 57. The chron- they might determine if I'm incredibly lucky and it's the sun shining in the right direction, that I look in my late 40s, which means my appearance is one of someone under 50, which that's great, that's wonderful. But what about my organs? What about my ability to process food? Are there things, for example, just for myself again, I can't eat certain foods now that I could process very easily when I was younger. And I'm not abusing steroids or other drugs or doing crazy things or in an elite group of bodybuilders that arguably, for example, are stressing their body with extreme diets. Uh, something from school wrestling style, the guys that used to go and do the dehydration thing in order to drop weight by sitting in a sauna in a sauna suit and dropping weight. And then we've had blokes that without that that passed away because they were dehydrated. That's a strain on your kidneys. Doing extreme diets, doing drugs like DMP, all of this stuff is a stressor. So outwardly, you might appear to be 30, but inwardly, your organs, you're getting blood tests and they're coming back with numbers that say you're 50 or 60 or 70. This is the stuff that we'd expect to see if you was an old man, but you're not an old man. I've just double-checked your birth certificate. So all of these things is wear and tear. And ultimately, if you're in the position of Tom, medical science is great. It really is great. And Steve makes a point of saying that arguably Tom could have probably passed away 10 or even 15 years ago, but for dialysis. And I would say this is very, very true. Uh, In any other situation, in any other society that doesn't have the medication that we got here, Tom would have been dead a long time ago. So that's just how much of a difference medical science is making but it also means that his body was not capable of keeping him alive he would be dead already and that is just it's, it, that that in itself is a reason and i want to make a particular point of this steve now and again at the end of the podcast with you uh, coming in of getting your bloods tested checking the what cholesterol levels got your goal what's your hemoglobin like Let's see what your testosterone levels are like. Let's do all these measures to see actually if you're healthy. 
or is there something in there you need to take a look at? And nine times out of 10, guys, it's not because of drugs, although that could be part of it. It's not because of training, which could also be part of it. It's just something you need to change in your lifestyle. Let's, let's talk about the drugs there, Stephen. And I want you to come back at the end of the drugs and talk specifically about blood tests and the reason for doing them. Yeah, and definitely remind me on that. So he talks, uh, you know, I was able to dig up some information on what Prince was actually running um, ahead of his 2001 Night of Champions competition. So um, I was able to dig that up. You won't hear about that on any other podcast. So I was able to dig it up myself. And this is this is right from the horse's mouth. This isn't speculation. Uh, this is actually what he said. So let's kind of uh, analyze this a little bit. One of the things uh, he talks about before I kind of, um, you know, let's talk about some of the things that he did before we get into the specifics. He says that caffeine and federal use were important to him because it kept his body temperature up as he believed it helped him burn fat and stimulate his metabolism. So he was on a lot of stimulants. Um, I've talked about stimulants in the past, how I'm not a fan of stimulants. I'm not a fan of revving up your heart like that. It puts a lot of pressure. We talked about stress. We talked about the pressure in your heart. Um, you get dizzy. You get, you get, you know, lightheaded. You feel, you know, fatigue when you, when you mess around with your heart like that and you rev it up like that and doing these stimulants. But this is what he depended on to keep his metabolism firing off. And the, the flip side is the thing with the stimulants is the more you take, the more you're going to have to take to get that effect because eventually your body will adjust. So really over the long term, it does the opposite. It's actually slowing your metabolism down, if that makes sense, unless you just stay on them. So if you were to abuse these stimulants and then stop using them, expect the opposite to occur, except your metabolism is slow way back down. That's the thing with DMP. DMP does the same thing. People who use DMP, they may lose a lot of fat when you're using DMP, but when they come off DMP, you have the opposite effect because DMP actually causes your body metabolism to slow down. And then when you do come off the DMP, that DMP isn't in your system anymore to work its magic. So you get that little that you get that rebound effect, that negative rebound effect. So I'm not I'm not a fan of, of of stimulants, but guys, especially in those days, they messed around with stimulants a lot and they got yeah. really hooked on them. Another thing that he would do is he would raise a dose of steroids going into his show because he believed that the leaner you get, the more steroids you should use to counteract the muscle loss. So this is interesting that he would do that. So he would start at a lower level, then pyramid the steroids higher and higher. So that kind of lends credence when you see people say, well, you know, I pyramid my steroids up and down. This kind of lends credence to that a little bit, because that was basically something that it makes sense. It makes sense in theory. But as a normal Joe, it really doesn't make much sense. But in his case, it makes sense because he's cutting into his competition. He's cutting down so quickly that he doesn't want to lose the muscle. He wants to keep his muscle, but cut down as much fat as he can in a short amount of time. It's all about timing. So it makes sense in, in that regard. Yeah, Mobster, uh, chime in on your thoughts on that one. Just on that particular thought process, and I can understand the logic of trying to retain the muscle tissue that you've been working very hard all year for while losing as much fat and getting as lean and in shape as possible. But arguably, we're back to that health aspect again, right? And again, guys, we understand 
you know, we, we've, we've used performance enhancing drugs. We know why we use them. We know why you use them. We get it. But what, I, what again, I said before, it's been said by professional bodies. It's been said by a bunch of other pundits, and we've said it. If you're dieting down for a competition, the visual is of health. The how you look is of health. But in reality, you're trying to keep muscle tissue while losing fat, and you're trying to look kind of out of worldly. You're trying to look kind of crazy. So the argument then becomes that you are unhealthy. And we've talked about this in previous hardcore podcasts. We don't bullshit you. Pro bodybuilders have said the same thing. Standing on stage at the Mr. Olympia level, ripped to fuck, lean as it's possible to be, the soles of your feet, the, the fatty tissue between the bone and the, and the skin, the soles of your feet, is so thin it's uncomfortable to stand, isn't healthy. Now imagine upping the performance enhancing drugs that you're taking. So not only are you trying to do something crazy to your body, which is kind of unhealthy in and of itself. Once you get under 10%, especially when you get the really, really low numbers, the 4% and under, you're actually kind of pushing your body right there. It's arguably unhealthy to be that lean, especially long-term. Only a few people are like that. Again, the rest of us are not. And it doesn't matter where you live and your genetic background or whatever. And then again, you're, you're depleting yourself deliberately. So you're making yourself tired deliberately. You're kind of almost deliberately overtraining. You're doing hours of cardio when all you want to do is lay down on bed. And then you are up in your drugs you're upping the stuff that's going into your body. You're upping uh, the stress. So again, it's one of those things where logically, theoretically, it sounds okay. But in reality, the potential to push yourself to a particular extreme, and that's without getting into diuretics. And of course, Steve's already mentioned taking a lot of stimulants. One suspects part of that, Steve, was for him enjoying himself in the gym, requiring himself, you know, when I'm tired, when my joints are aching, let's take some painkillers. And let's get in the gym and tear shit up. So essentially buzzing on pre-workouts and using ephrogen and caffeine. They're very, they're very, especially ephrogen back in the day. What's not mentioned on that particular list, and I don't think uh, Tom was necessarily a person that used it, but he has mentioned it. And that is a new bane was a big deal at that time as well. So you do it all this kind of crazy fucked up stuff when you are arguably the least healthy that is possible to be for you. Sort of, you know, smashing yourself in the bollocks with your with the back of your hand. You're just doing kind of crazy stuff. And, you know, Steve and I have touched upon this and we can reference the numbers here, which are not extreme, but the extreme numbers that other athletes are doing, again, are arguably unhealthy. So I don't know, Steve, I, I've, I've always been, especially for my strength stuff, which is different, I understand, one to stick the course. If I start on this amount, that's what I'm using all the way through. The idea that I would double it, double it, triple it, whatever, uh, when it was already fairly high, if I was a professional bodybuilder, into kind of crazy levels, on top of everything else that I'm doing, it's not healthy, guys. It's as simple as that. It just isn't. I can understand wanting to retain the muscle tissue. You know, when you're doing crazy hours of cardio, you're depleting and everything else that you're doing in order to look absolutely mental when you're out there on stage in front of the guys, in front of the judges. I get it. I do. I understand it. I understand that desire. But is it healthy? No. Is it good for you? No. Are you arguably stressing your systems and your immune system and your support system and your organs? Yes, yes, yes. Steve. Yeah, Mom, so I want you to go over the next couple uh, things before we go over the specific cycle. Right. Go over the next couple of thoughts and give us your thoughts on that. 
I mean, one of the things he says that he didn't do was insulin. And um, hard to say, really, with regards to Tom, looking at his physique, I suspect his previously, and again, guys, you get we're talking about information that's available to us from himself, the manipulation of his carbs, the carb cycling, et cetera, et cetera, suggests to me that perhaps this is true, uh, not using insulin, which is why we haven't mentioned it. And it would make sense to me in that particular regards. So again, of that time, and this was almost a history lesson. So we're talking about guys doing two, sometimes three hours of cardio, getting on the step mill, riding the bike, doing the road and whatever else. And we don't seem to see that anymore. Very few guys, you've got a million bodybuilding videos out there, guys, but you don't see, <laughs> with maybe one or two exceptions, you don't see guys on the treadmill or doing the cardio. I mean, Christ, Jay Cutler retired, doing his daily walks has become a thing in and of itself. And Kai Green on, on, on the uh, step mill, grinding their way and sweating onto the machine, et cetera. It's the only two that occur to me. I don't think we're looking at professional bodybuilders doing their cardio in the same way. These Maybe these videos just don't entertain. But believe you and me, they are doing some. But whether they're doing the two, three, sometimes up to four hours that we heard guys were doing in the 90s, which would be Tom's time, I don't think we, well, I don't think we do. So definitely burning that fat off and holding on to tissue by manipulating the anabolics and doing the cardio, going out and walking, going out and getting his steps, jogging in a rare occasion, uh, body, most bodybuilders don't, but one or two will, riding the bike, for example. Um, therefore, the use of insulin and carb manipulation and playing around with uh, human growth hormone, although we do know that he did do it, won't be as extreme as we might see now. Uh, so it's one of those things, guys. I would argue you use these things the, the least amount possible in order to produce the best result. Then that might mean that you've got to go out and grind on the treadmill. You've got to go out and grind up and down those steps. And I think that's how he was doing it. And that's how he was getting into shape. Uh, it's, it's as a reference here, tried it one time and didn't like it. And I think that also seems to recall something that Dorian Yates has said as well. It was something that he tried and that his body didn't respond well to. I think what we might see with a lot of guys now, Steve, is almost, it's a kind of almost a given. Oh, I'm a professional bodybuilder, I've got to use insulin. Whereas if a Mr. Olympia or someone with a physique like Tom said, actually, no. We, we tried it and it didn't work for us and we just felt awful or we bounced back or as you referenced with the DMP earlier on, which we know talk, I've talked about in previous podcasts, then that's not a good thing. It's great you need to drop in 20 pounds, but it means nothing if you don't look good on stage and it means nothing if you look worse after and then have to fight even harder to lose the weight. So these things to me are where we can take some solace and some uh, uh, advice from Tom in that he's tried this stuff, realised it wasn't for him, threw it away, did not take it just because everybody else was taking it, did not use it just because it almost became a given that you had to use it. And that's something else that sometimes we we will see. I think there's something interesting here, Steve, in regards to any of this stuff. We, we I don't recall Tom being one of those people that's coached. And something that we sometimes see now with professional bodybuilders and for those that can afford to use a coach, non-professional bodybuilders, and that's almost giving up a responsibility uh, for your own experience, your own advice, uh, your own knowledge of your body to a coach 
them to kind of experiment on. And it's kind of silly. You ought to know some of the stuff when you go to see the coach so you can inform the coach. Uh, and Tom, of that time, wouldn't have been really coached to the best of my knowledge. So he was learning very much for himself what worked for himself. And as I say, specifically, insulin was one of those drugs that he tried, didn't like it, and felt that he wasn't going to get anything out of Steve. All right, so there's a few more points uh, that he mentioned. I'm going to go through them, and then we're going to kind of Lance back and forth, talk, yeah. talk about the uh, talk about the cycle specifically. So one of the things he believed in is fewer compounds to use, the more control he had over his body. And his favorites were testosterone and decadurable. And those were big back in those days. Um, people back in those days loved to use DECA. DECA was really low side effects. And it's, it's a great study. You talk to anybody who's mobster's age or older in the gym, they'll say, I fucking love DECA. You oh, talk to younger shot. guys and they're like, oh, great my God, shot. DECA. DECA will ruin my dick. DECA will uh, blow I me love DECA. DECA is one of my favorites. Yeah. So, I mean, it's amazing the, the bullshit bro science that's out there where people actually think that DECA is, is so bad for you. And it, it really is. It's one of the most mild steroids out there. And guys – loved using it in those days i just think that nowadays they just don't use deca and they they rather use trembolone i think that's what it is but don't let anyone scare you away from deca if you haven't tried it yet it's a great steroid another thing he mentioned which i thought was interesting is to him equipoise and deca did the same thing so he he, he much preferred to stop with deca um and the reason he stopped using trembolone around this time was because he couldn't find high quality stuff. So he, and that's true because Trembolone was pharmacy grade back in the nineties. Uh, it was, you could buy actual pharma grade, human grade Trembolone, and then they stopped manufacturing it. And um, so his tip with that was always get high quality steroids, high quality steroids, never use cheap gear and i think around that time around the 2000s there was a transition away from the availability of pharma grade gear versus just the underground bathtub gear especially in the united states i don't know if it's the same case in, in britain um it but in the united states i think due to the steroid laws back back in um late 80s early 90s once the steroid laws really started clamping down then pharmacy grade kind of started to disappear and then one more point um officer and i'll let you kind of comment he says that he stopped all steroids two weeks before the contest because it helped him lose water weight and he looked the best that way and that's funny because that's actually in some situations i recommend that to my clients that i work with one-on-one -on -one, and they look at me like i'm crazy but it really does work i know for me um let's say i'm running a trembolone cycle i don't look the best when I'm on the trembolone, I look the best after I stop the trembolone, I wait like two or three weeks. And that's because of all the inflammation that the steroids are putting in your body. But once you come off, the inflammation dies down in your body, the water weight dies off, the androgens start dying off. And then that's when you really look your best. That's when you're really, really looking top notch. And that's, that's what he, that's one of the secrets that he has uh, put out there. So I'm sorry, yeah, comment on that, and then we'll kind of run through uh, the cycle. I, I'm thinking here, Steve, I'm not entirely sure that he, I, I can, again, I can understand maybe the way that he's thinking, but I think he's wrong. And I'll tell you for why, right? I mean, how many people now 
for the last 10, 15, even 20 years, stops steroids two weeks out from a competition. And then you've got, go back to the comment that he himself has made as saying he was up in his steroids up to the competition in order to maintain muscle tissue and then stopping steroids two weeks before a competition. I can almost understand for argument's sake, a few days before, but the the idea that he's running- But yeah, I remember running, though, he's on- Deca and Deca's in your system six seven yeah. weeks. Yeah, yeah. So he's stopping it and letting it kind of drop. I think so. Basically, he's ramping it up, going, mm -hmm. and then the two weeks before stopping it and then letting it kind of fall off a cliff and leave his system. But it's still in the system on competition day, just at lower amounts. So yeah, okay. that, that's probably why. Yeah. Possibly, and again, looking at the, the the cycle which we're getting to in a minute, guys. Arguably, probably that's correct because. Sus, deco, testosterone, cyprinate, up to 600 milligrams a week, uh, it's going to be in your system for ages. And so, yeah, I can see that. I mean, the, the obvious thing, we, you and I would turn around and say, and we've addressed this in previous podcasts, guys, when we talk about competition cycles, we talk about short-acting gear. So you do longer-acting stuff months out, and then in weeks out, you're using short-acting gear, and the longer-acting stuff's clearing from your system, and the short-acting stuff is in and out of your system much quicker. Therefore, you're able to manipulate things better, et cetera, et cetera. And that kind of makes sense, too. So it swings and roundabouts. I think the obvious thing is, Steve, in reality, is, again, genetics, 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 right? Most of you guys with normal genetics wouldn't be able to do these kind of things. Use coming off anabolics and look better, you know, because you've been off for two weeks. It, it, for most of you, that wouldn't work. And again, but it's again one of those things where I think, if, for example, I mean, there's two the two drugs I've mentioned, Sustin Decra are amongst my two favorite injectable steroids ever. But that would be me blown up and as big and as strong as I possibly was at that particular time. I'm thinking mid 40s, mid to late 40s, and uh, the my physical peak, possibly arguably up to when I was 50 years of age, was around that time. And that's when I was using Suss and Decker. And that's when I would blow up. That's when I would go from 280 to 300 or, or there or thereabouts and come in and win competitions and get one or two world records or British records during a competition. So for me, those two drugs are great. But then would they necessarily be the ones I would choose if I was a bodybuilder? No, because I don't think me holding 20 pounds of water or even 10 pounds of water and 10 pounds of tissue is a great thing as a bodybuilder. I would might want to be leaner, but then I use other drugs to get lean, or am I reducing the, the Sustendeca plenty of time out, and so on and so forth. So it gets into that whole manipulation and individual response, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So let's be let's be straightforward here, guys. What worked for Tom might not work for you, and the idea that he was coming off all antibiotics because he was running longer acting or medium to longer acting gear up to two weeks before the competition wouldn't be what you would normally do and wouldn't be what if we was advising you when it comes to taking PEDs to do in a normal set of circumstances, unless we knew your body and you knew your body very, very well. And we knew that we could do those kind of things. As another great advantage, Steve, especially when it comes to DECA, of course, and that's the feel good factor. I think the DECA dick thing is probably dose related. And again, an individual response stuff, but the thing about DECA, which has been said a million times, uh, is true in one hand and not necessarily true on the other hand is that it makes your joints feel good because it does there is some collagen synthesis vis-a-vis -vis what your tendons and your sinews and your collective tissue is made out of but it does not heal a knackered joint it does not heal a knackered shoulder or a knackered knee or a knackered elbow 
and especially if you carry on doing the crazy stuff. So, you know, we talk about this a million times, and I go back again to some of the comments and the symptoms, uh, stuff, etc. that we refer to, that is in training, enjoying training in the gym, but again, using painkillers. So I can see perhaps that was another reason why Decker was in there. And perhaps he doesn't necessarily identify in that particular way. Maybe he's just looking in the mirror and that's the result. And that's what he puts down when he's making notes. What he might not associate is the thing between taking Decker and having joint and pain, pain, painless joints or less pain joints uh, alongside the painkillers, the Advil, the ibuprofen that we knew that he was using and not necessarily connecting the dots and realizing that perhaps the combination of Decker and painkillers masked issues that he didn't recognize because he looked great in the mirror and he was winning competitions. So it's that fine balance, Stephen, and looking, you and I could come in as outside coaches and start asking this question straight away. Him on himself, not being coached, seeing that he looks great, winning competitions is not answering these questions. So on one hand, he's being logical and he see what's worked for him. But on the other hand, he's not joining the dots in regards to the other two issues. Back to you. All right, guys, so we're almost done with this, but let's dumb down um, what he was going through here. So yep. this is the actual list, HGH, four IUs, up to six IUs. Notice today, guys are running a lot more. If you're running a lot yep. more, you're going to need insulin because your blood, blood sugar is going to get too fucking high. So you're going to have to take the insulin and drop it down to give you that nutrition partitioning effect to take advantage of all that HGH that you're spending money on. In his case, he wasn't using crazy amounts, four to six IUs. And, um, you know, who knows if that was even legit HGH. It could have been underdosed. Um, I'm telling you nowadays, you could find good quality HGH because, you know, the sources we have on the form and stuff. And if you run any more than three IUs uh, of, of HGH, expect some side effects. So, yes. I mean, in his day, maybe he wasn't getting good access to HGH. I have no clue. Um, it's possible. It just depends on who his source was. But um, back in those days, you didn't have access to the blood work we have today. So he sounded like he could go get blood work and make sure, hey, HGH is good. Now you can get blood work. So if a source wants to cheat people, it's not going to be as easy today. Because you can go get your IGF-1 tested literally the next day. Another thing he was using, uh, basically, three steroids. Testosterone slash sustenon. Sustenon, of course, is a blend of four different testosterones. Second one, Winstrol. Third one, Decadurobolin. So Decadurobolin up to 300 milligrams a week. The Winstrol up to 100 milligrams three times a week. 50 to 100 milligrams three times a week. That's interesting. He wasn't really using it daily. He was using it more of an every other day type of scenario. And then the sustenin, 250 milligrams per week, first six weeks only. And then testosterone, sipinate, the rest of the way, 600 milligrams. I don't know why he did that, but hey, you know, psychologically, he felt like, hey, I run sustenin <laughs> the first six weeks, I guess, because it has propanate in it. And he thinks, you know, they thought at the time, you know, sustenin ah, kicks in quicker, blah, blah, blah. blah. It may quick in, uh, kick in a little quicker because of the small amount of propionate, but it is should be considered a long, long ester. So really, it's got the decanate ester in there and the sustenin. That's a 15-day half-life. So it's going to kick in after five or six weeks. Not kick in, but it's going to make peak levels after five, six weeks. So he's stopping it at, at six weeks. 
um and right when he stops it is when it's starting to reach peak so that doesn't make any sense but hey like i said psychologically if that floats his boat great and then the testosterone sipony, i think i mentioned it up to 600 milligrams a week so those three steroids testosterone and and different esters of testosterone winstrol and deca it wasn't rocket science he liked to keep things simple and that's what yes. worked for him and the reason he didn't lose equipoise as we mentioned was he didn't see any difference between Deca and Equipoise. And he's sort of right. They both are very mild steroids that don't aromatize very much. So that makes perfect sense. Mobster, chime in on that. Finish us off on the other compounds he was using. Give us your thoughts yeah. and then take us into the disclaimer. Well, I would to double check with you. Don't forget to do talk about the blood test. Yeah, I'll remind me I'll on that one, yeah. I'll jump in very quickly. So, guys, I'll, I'll run the drugs very quickly, but the, the thing that occurs to me, and it's something that I referred to just now, it's the feel-good factor that we sometimes get with uh, testosterones, various forms of anabolic steroids, and that mirror that I mentioned a few minutes ago. So I, I think in my head that the reason why he did what he was doing here, Steve, is he felt good when he was on these drugs, which meant he was able to train the way that he liked to, that he enjoyed, and he mentioned specifically enjoyed, and he was keeping that muscle tissue that he'd worked so hard for, even if it was going down from a massive 300 plus, 316, 317 pounds down to 235, rip the fuck. Being able to look in the mirror and seeing that physique, seeing that muscle looking back at you is going to put a smile on your face. It's going to say, I look damn good even when I'm tired. I look damn good even when I've depleted. And that might arguably be the case with regards to the drugs that we've looked at so far because you know as you said with regards to half-life time in the system um, talked about that can make you feel good etc 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 in the gym pounding away on the weights that he was having the joint issues and essentially going no i feel great i feel great on your steroids i look great on these steroids and that was probably the reason why and of course quite simply he was placing well in competition so you know, he will turn around and say, to, well, if I'm winning competitions and placing, if I look good, I feel good, I can train great. What's the fucking problem? But obviously, we knew that there was underlying problems and we knew that certain things were being masked. And we, we obviously now know, ultimately, that the damage was being done without him necessarily realising. I'll touch on the others very, very quickly, Steve. We've, we've, we've addressed a couple of them already. One, which has not been mentioned, is Teslac. Novadex, of course, for the, uh, you know, stopping you guys getting a bitch tits. Uh, Ephrogen, very popular, as Steve says, in the 90s, not less so now. Other stims are out there, and of course, Ephrogen's been banned. It's also uh, a precursor for uh, methamphetamine and uh, caffeine. Uh, and again, Steve and I agree on this. As much as I'm a fan of coffee, I am not a fan of stimulants. And again, I'm thinking, although it was popular and fashionable so we say for the time these are also drugs that would have upped him and got him in the mood and give him the sense of energy that would allow him to do the stuff that he was doing in the gym uh, pounding away on the wetsuit and so on and so forth so it's one of those things along with the painkillers masking agent in the case of the painkiller and uh, an energy an energy agent in the case of the last two that's going to enable you to go to the gym and absolutely tear shit up Talk about the value of blood tests, Steve. You're the blood test expert. And I think in yeah. reference to Tom and Tom's death, Tom's illnesses, et cetera, and the, Ill, uh, but the, uh, the health value of getting blood tests for our listeners before I do the disclaimer. If you guys get your blood work done, 
um, on cycle, you'll notice a lot of things are off. And that's, you know, that's pretty normal on cycle, but that's why we come off steroids. We got to give our bodies a break, right? So if you come off steroids for a certain amount of time, I would hope you'd want to come off for at least a few months, right? And your blood work doesn't normalize, then you've got issues, you know? So when you're on cycle, blood, urine, nitrogen, BUN, um, your creatinine levels, those are tied into the kidneys. Then you have AST, ALT, those are tied into liver for the most part. And those numbers tend to go sky high on cycle. Red blood cell count tends to go up sky high. That's tied into your heart health. So we have a tendency in today's bodybuilding and to, to get blood work done and say, yeah, oh, it's normal. It's normal for my BUN to be high. It's normal for my creatinine to be high. It's normal for my AST, ALT to be high. It's normal for my red blood cell count to be high. And it's not, you know, it's not. So you're straining your organs when you're doing that. So it's very important to never go into a cycle when these numbers are sky high. It might boil down to having to, and if you want to stay healthy, it might boil down to losing some, some size. You know, carrying around a lot of size is going to strain your kidneys. That's just the fact. Eating tons of protein is going to strain your kidneys. That's just the fact. You may have to try uh, for a couple weeks or a month just eating fruits and vegetables and having some, some fish and some chicken breast here and there for a month. Try that. And then I bet you that your, your uh, kidney numbers will improve. So, I mean, these are things that you guys have to do, do a better job of, of um, taking care of your organs, because what ends up happening is if your organs aren't functioning well, you're not going to be able to reach your fitness goals in the first place. So it's, a, it's, it's definitely tough because if you're a pro bodybuilder, you're having to abuse steroids and uh, you're going to shorten your life for sure. You don't see pro bodybuilders that live very long for a reason, but you see guys like Arnold who are living very long because later on in life, they've taken care of themselves. They've eaten their fruits and vegetables. They've done the fasting. They've stayed away from abusing steroids. They've stayed away from hammering their body into the dirt and they're still, they're still alive and well, but then the other bodybuilders who hammer their bodies nonstop, they're the ones that die. They die early. You know, they die early. They shorten their life. So, mobster, yeah, finish up, buddy, and take us to the screen, Rip. I'll give you a quick example, Steve. We sometimes see on the forums guys that have been to the doctors, had a blood test, had gone, gone, gone for their regular medical checkup, and they'll come back with something like, my cholesterol numbers are off. But they don't mention what medication they're on. And we know it's specifically referring to the US, but to some lesser degree here in the UK, that the amount of medication people are on seems to be getting bigger and bigger all the time. And so you go, oh, well, I'm, I'm training the gym and I'm taking my creatine and my vitamins. Guys, you're not mentioning the other drugs that you take, the anxiety drugs that you're on, the other medication that you're on, if you're on blood thinners and so on. You don't mention if you're 40 or 50 or 60 pounds overweight and it's all fat. You know, you're not telling us if you never go out and do any exercises or whatever else. So nine times out of 10, my response is, you know, change your diet. Your doctor's telling you to make a change and you're coming on asking, is there a supplement I can take? Well, there may well be a supplement that's going to help protect your organs, but how about you stop eating shit 
and you do actual exercise for your heart and your lungs to reduce your bad lipids, to reduce your cholesterol, bad cholesterol, to get fucking healthy. I mean, it sounds bleeding well obvious. You can't take a pill or a supplement for every fucking thing. The perverse part of that conversation, of course, is that you have had a test. Your blood has been tested by your doctor. It might be your regular medical checkup. It might be done for insurance purposes. It might come as a result of some other thing that you had to go to hospital for. But here's the thing. You can't fix it all the time with a pill. You need to eat better. You need to do healthy exercise. You might need to take a week off training. And another quick one for you guys, especially when it comes to blood tests. Sometimes, and it's a good example, is creatine versus the creatinine. Uh, or creatine, as uh, Steve said, for the blood test, can give false value. So sometimes the medication that you're on and creatine as a supplement will give a false value in the test. So suddenly one of the measures, which is a bad measure, is high. Of course it's high. It's because the creatine is broken down in your body when it's given a false blood value. So one of the things that you're supposed to do is not take a bunch of medication and not take a bunch of supplements when you go for the blood test. That might mean four or five days off of those products so that when you do go for a blood test, it gives a truer picture of what's going on. And then, like I said, address it properly, fix it. And that is quite something as simple as you making lifestyle changes. It doesn't mean you can keep on eating pizza. You can never do any cardio. You can just, you know, abuse pain-killing medication and another drug will fix that. How about you do some of the work too? Take responsibility, but get those tests. Right, guys, as always, please note, we are not doctors, and the opinions in these podcasts are hours and hours alone. It is our view, and based on our experience and views on the topic, our podcast of informational purposes and entertainment only, the freedom of speech and the First Amendment.